Welcome to another episode of The Sound of Doom, the Samuel-only version of Sound Digressions. Today, I'm just going to do a review of recent podcasts that I've listened to concerning the origins of the SARS Cove to virus. Now I know I've done a few episodes about this already, but the Son of Doom. Here's another one. I feel like the investigation of the origins is finally getting some traction. It's taken a few months. Well, it's taken almost two years, if we're being honest. Anyway, these are just like two small little bits of <laughs> the, material, the materials into the origins of COVID that I've enjoyed recently. Uh, there are many more. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to link to a couple of things in the, in the show notes. And, uh, anyway, I hope <laughs> the, the topic is as fresh and exciting for you as it is for me. And uh, here we go. I was kind of excited because this week two of the podcasts that I listen to regularly did episodes on the origins of the coronavirus, which, um, you know, they get, get, get the investigation gets thrown into what, it, you know, under the name lab leak theory, which I've learned not to use anymore. It's like looking at the origins of COVID, investigating the origins of COVID. Because up to right now, there's no concrete evidence supporting whether a zoonotic um, emergence of the virus, that is to say, emerging from direct uh, contact between humans and animals who happen to carry SARS-CoV-2, or that it's came from a lab, that it resulted, that resulted, that the contagion, the, the emergence of the virus in human populations emerge due to the activities of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Anyway, uh, I was excited that both this podcast did episodes on this topic and then I was disappointed. <laughs> the two podcasts are the Trailbilly Worker Workers Party out of Kentucky, and the other one is Canada Land, um, which is produced here in Canada in um, in Toronto. And well, I think with the Trailbillies, what was kind of disappointing about it was that they had to spend so much time being an American podcast. And I guess I understand that they, they need to view things through an American lens. And being kind of a lefty podcast, they have to understand things through an American left lens. Um, but yeah, they just spent so much time apologizing for actually uh, dealing with us with the topic, which is... <laughs> 
which is uh, which is ridiculous, um, in my view, because um, there's a lot of like credible research out there pointing to the fact that more research that a better investigation needs to be done into the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and that's a legitimate research avenue that one should not have to apologize for investigating so there was that I did enjoy the fact I mean like it's, it is a humor podcast uh, in some respects uh, looking at career events and like um, stretching it a, a bit farther whenever possible uh, I did enjoy that they went right for the pandemic angle at the end um, that it was I mean like <laughs> which is great I feel like go big or go home and uh, they went big pandemic um, <laughs> there there's a <laughs> I think that, I mean, undoubtedly, the conspiracy to halt or um, impede a proper investigation uh, into the origins of COVID is that that's, those blocks are not being placed exclusively by the Chinese government. They are also being put in place by what appear what you know something I did not know existed. What looks to be a global uh, virology industrial complex, uh, <laughs> and that includes uh, many many scientists, many virologists around the world who are working with dangerous pathogens. And we'll get into into that more in a bit. Um, so yeah, the, you know the, the, this idea that you know there's a new world order uh, uh, attempting to uh, infect the earth with pathogen deadly pa- deadly pathogens. Um, I, ge- I guess you could leap to that. <laughs> uh, I feel like I would not make that leap, but I do enjoy. Uh, when that leap is made as a comedy bit. But maybe it's not comedy. Maybe maybe they're right. Maybe the, the, <laughs> the right way of thinking about this is to think about a pandemic. I don't know. So, yeah. That episode annoyed me, but uh, because of all the apologizing about the fact that they were covering the subject, but in the end it paid off because there, there was a good fulfilling bit at the end that went farther than I go when thinking about this stuff. Then there was a Canada, the, the Canada Land episode with, uh, in which Jesse Brown interviewed Elaine Dewar. I guess she just published a book about the uh, let me look it up here. What's the name of her book? Uh, 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 Elaine Dewar. On the origin of the deadliest pandemic in 100 years. An investigation. 
That's the name of a book. Just released about uh, three weeks ago. And I hadn't heard about her. I haven't followed her at all. Uh, maybe she's not uh, a deranged Twitter user like uh, the rest of the people I follow uh, for material on the origins of COVID. Um, and uh, I... She, she had a lot of... I mean, she painted the broad strokes of the story, as I understand them, very well. Um, but there were a couple of things that stuck out uh, uh, that, that, that were like major red flags for me uh, in the way that she told the story. The first one being that at no point whatsoever during this nearly an hour-long interview... Did she mention drastic? Drastic. The centralized, radical, autonomous search team investigating COVID-19. Now, these are, this is a collective of independent researchers who found each other on Twitter and started sharing information and started sharing uh, their analysis. Uh, between themselves, and they're scattered all over the world. There's a few from India. There's a few from France. I don't know where some of them are from. I'm sure there's Americans in the bunch. There's um, a Russian-Canadian involved as well. Uh, I think there might be some Chinese uh, people involved as well. Anyway, some of them are anonymous. Some of them are public. Uh, you know, name, name themselves publicly. Uh, so it's hard to say precisely where everybody's from, but... Uh, this collective has been instrumental in unearthing and in pushing forward the, the call for better investigation into the origins of SARS-CoV-2. And they've unearthed quite a lot more information than the majority of scientists are, um, you know, the more reputable scientific networks have been able to unearth themselves, or even the intelligence agencies, uh, like the recent Biden intelligence report um, that came out, um, was not able to produce as much data as this, uh, as Drastic has. And like one of the first things that the Canada Land episode mentions is a recent um, proposal submitted by Echo Health Alliance. Now, <laughs> whenever I tell the story, uh, whenever this story is told, it has to be in like small steps because because you need to explain each thing. You know, like these things are obvious to me, and I feel like maybe that's part of why I was able to follow Elaine De War a lot more easily than Jesse Brown was. Like, at numerous times during the interview, he expresses how lost and confused he is by all the data that he's absorbing, which um, which is kind of, I mean, like, I, which points to two things. Uh, <laughs> he should have been better prepared uh, and not just relied on his... Uh, on Elaine de War uh, to provide him with information. Um, and two, that uh, Elaine de War is not particularly good at explaining things. Uh, 
Uh, at least not orally. I have no, I have not read her book, uh, so I can't judge her book. I can't, you know, I grant that someone can be very good at explaining things uh, in written form and terrible at explaining things orally. Uh, that's possible. Of course, it is. Um, but Jesse Brown should have been better prepared. Read a bit more into this than just relied on Elaine DeWar's account. Anyway, to backtrack, where was I? EcoHealth Alliance. Jesse mentions this report. I'm oh, sorry, sorry. The the unearthing of a grant proposal submitted by EcoHealth Alliance to DARPA. DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency of the of the Pentagon, and EcoHealth Alliance is a international non-for-profit that funds. I don't know if they do it exclusively, but I know that they certainly do fund virology research. So this proposal by EcoHealth Alliance, along with um, the University of North Carolina, it sounds like I haven't I haven't fully read the proposal. I've only read like. Uh, the Intercept and what Drastic has published uh, about it. Um, but anyway, there's numerous labs around the world involved. Uh, lab in Singapore, Lab in North Carolina, EcoHealth Alliance. And this report details how, how the proposal is to look into ways of modifying existing coronaviruses um, to give them uh, novel furin cleavage sites. Um, now, a furin cleavage site, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a virologist. I cannot explain this properly. My understanding is that um, it is a part of the spike protein we know the coronavirus, we've all seen the images, we've all seen the little spike sticking out, uh, the spike protein. And the furring cleavage site is a specific part of the spike protein that allows it to bind and penetrate human cells better. It's one of the things that makes it like particularly um, effective at infecting uh, human cells. So this grant proposal from EcoHealth Alliance and its partners to DARPA is giving, a, you know, gives a lot of details about how they plan to develop, you know, the, the chimeric viruses, essentially, you know, to give existing coronaviruses, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and uh, actually, anyway, I'll, I'll talk about them later. Well, I'll remove that because they're not involved yet. Um, so, it, yeah, it talks about like giving coronaviruses new cleavage sites, and in particularly, you know, furring cleavage sites. And that that was released, I think, like maybe last week, maybe a week and a half ago. This 
the, this document, this grant proposal. DARPA refused it, refused to fund it. But the proposal itself shows that scientists were already working on these kind of activities. Now, when the SARS-CoV-2 genome was first sequenced and released and analyzed, one of the things that really stood out to many scientists as signaling a potential engineering was this what was its particular furring cleavage sites which is well adapted to penetrate human cells so now we know that SARS-CoV-2 emerged at the end of 2019 the proposal submitted to DARPA was submitted in 2018. So, you know, that this gives you, it's not conclusive evidence of anything happening. But it is evidence that scientists were thinking of engineering SARS viruses in a way that would give them specifically the kind of furin sites, furin cleavage sites, that were seen as a red flag by people analyzing the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So there's no direct link, and people will say, oh, well, um, this research was not funded, the grant was not granted, the grant proposal was not approved. But, I mean, like we, a lot of scientists are saying that uh, even if it was not funded by DARPA, the idea was out there and it is very possible that funding was received from somewhere else, another agency, perhaps the Chinese government, uh, and it's very possible that this research continued even though um, DARPA did not fund it. The American military did not fund it. The Pentagon. Right. So, Jesse Brown and Elaine DeWar cover this, maybe a little more briefly than I did. And they failed to mention that this grant proposal was released by Drastic. Somebody, whoever leaked it, trusted Drastic as a source, as a venue for releasing this document, than any mainstream journalist or scientist. So, I mean, like, that just points clearly to the importance, that, uh, to, to the important role that Drastic has played throughout the pandemic. And this is not like their only, their, their first big scoop. Uh, Elaine de War talks a lot about the Mojang mines in Yunnan province, where uh, six miners fell ill with a coronavirus, 
We only know about that mine and those miners getting sick because of drastic. They are the ones that unearth, obscure, or at least, you know, not out in the light, uh, Chinese um, student papers about those miners. It is baffling that Drastic was not mentioned at all. She mentioned the people who were like, a few people who, who, who were sounding the alarm, not sounding the alarm per se, but like pointing out to the fact that an investigate a proper investigation was not being conducted into the origins of COVID, because they were not investigating the potential lab origin of the virus. And well, the first example that she cites, it's from the end of 2020. I know for certain, I've read the documents, members of Drastic were pointing out discrepancies in the Chinese story, the Chinese government story, um, and highlighting the oddity of this foreign cleavage side. As early, I want to say April 2020, I think the first or the earliest accounting of it, I didn't read about it until like a year later. I didn't read the paper until a year later. But Yuri Dagan, a member of Drastic, uh, did publish a paper on April 22nd, 2020, uh, outlining his thoughts on, you know, initially he, he says himself that he, 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 he started looking into the SARS-CoV-2 virus to in 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 an effort to debunk what was the so-called lab leak theory and that in the process of trying to debunk it he realized oh no there's something to it and look at this foreign cleavage side that is so bizarre and look at these other bizarre things that are happening uh around the communications um in the communications around the virus um and he pointed the conflict, you know, highlighting the conflicts of interest of people in EcoHealth Alliance, notably Peter Daszak and um, other scientists who who were also in conflict of interest, uh, who were saying publicly that the lab leak hypothesis was a conspiracy theory, saying publicly that this was a conspiracy theory without revealing their conflict of interest because they were uh, in some way, in one way or another, associated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Either usually through like uh, having worked there, having collaborated with scientists there, uh, having been involved in something like um, the DARPA grant proposal with them. Uh, They all had links. They all had a reason for preferring the zoonotic origin story to the lab leak story. And they did not disclose this. Elaine de War points rightly to kind of like the more high profile voices that were sounding, you know, and, and how late they were in arriving to sounding the alarm or, you know, to like pointing to the, 
the missing research, the research that was not being done. Um, but the uh, these calls for greater transparency and for the need for a more thorough investigation were happening long before um, any of these more mainstream voices caught on. Drastic was doing this work pretty early on into the pandemic. One of the one of the articles that like kind of brought me into looking at this more closely was published in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, I think. Anyway, it's one or the other by Nicholas Wade. And Nicholas Wade, rightly, in his article, you know, credits drastic. Another researcher who I looked at, who, you know, one of the first people I started listening to when I started looking at the, or, um, the investigation into the origins of COVID is Alina Chan, who also credits drastic with, you know, for all the research and the contributions that they've made. So it's very, it was very glaring, uh, a very glaring omission for Dewar not to mention drastic at all. It, it, why? Why leave them out? Another thing that Elaine says, which was bizarre, I, I don't, and this confused Jesse as well, uh, Jesse Brown. Uh, she said that, you know, that she, she kind of like tried to draw a straight line between the Mojang mine miners and their infection to SARS-CoV-2. And then she tried to fudge that straight line. And then she tried to draw it again. And it was, and it was frustrating. I don't think any of the mem any, I don't think any of the members of Drastic nor any of the public information that has been released uh, has claimed precisely which SARS virus these miners were infected with. What is known about the mine is that Xi Jiangli, the head of the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and her team uh, collected hundreds of samples, maybe thousands of samples. Uh, of coronaviruses from those mines and that they've guarded the information about those viruses very closely. They have not published most of it. Um, we know about a few. We know about uh, the one that made headlines in February 2020. RITG 13, just Xi Jiangli, the head of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, published a paper in which the sequence, the full sequence of RITG 13 was presented. And this was, this, uh, at the point, at the time, it was the closest match to SARS CoV 2, about a 96% uh, match, which I am told. 
uh, 96% match between two viruses would mean that they diverged as late as 60 years ago, maybe as early as 40 years ago. There, there's a gap, maybe 30 years ago, if you're being generous. I don't know. Um, but it means that they diverged quite, quite a few decades ago. So 96%, but you know, at the time, there was a lot of talk. Could it be, could it possibly be that um, RITG13 was used as the backbone for SARS-CoV-2? And I've heard debate going back and forth. Some people believe that it's enough of a match for it to have been a backbone. Others believe that it's not. I I think the, the consensus now is that it's probably not quite enough. But um, what it points to is that you know that that, that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is hiding information. And that they have a lot of lab, uh, a lot of uh, coronaviruses in their lab that they've had for like the last seven or eight years. Um, you know, since they started collecting, this since they started visiting the Mojang mine in 2013, and they have not published or sequenced. They might have sequenced them, but they have not published the sequences of whatever viruses they may have discovered there. The extrapolation that the war makes, that they're, you know, like that those, that whatever virus learned how to infect humans in the mine and then it went through the lab and then somehow emerged as SARS-CoV-2. It's possible. But it seems really improbable. Um, we don't know which virus those miners were infected with. So, you know, m- making a guess about whatever they were infected, they were infected with, becoming SARS-CoV-2, eh, eh, there's just not enough there. There's not enough there to to say that it's it's not enough there's just not enough Uh, yeah yeah do better the other point of contention with that interview for me the last one is that the war spends a lot of time talking about two um, Canadian scientists um, who were fired and from the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg in 2020. They were first suspended and I think eventually fired. Maybe they're just suspended. I don't know. Anyway, they 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 collaborated with um <sighs> I feel like I didn't follow this story quite as closely, so I'm, I'm not as familiar with it, and I, I've tried to familiarize myself with a few of the details. But basically, my take from the war's interview is that she was extrapolating a lot from the fact that this Canadian scientist, um, both of them of Chinese heritage, naturalized Canadians, um, 
she extrapolated. I think there's something a little bit, I don't know, like she wants something to happen there that isn't quite there from the information given. I'm going to butcher their names. Um, the two scientists are Xiang Guoqiu and her husband, Keding Cheng. And they've both been in Canada for years. Uh, they're Canadians. And I guess their big uh, error was that they collaborated with Chinese scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And the Chinese scientists happened to be part of the People's Liberation Army. Now, there, you know, whatever the links may be, if any, if any links exist between these two scientists and the Chinese military and bioweapons research that they might be conducting, we don't know. News stories made a big deal out of the fact that they sent a, chipment, a, a shipment of Ebola and another pathogen, uh, Ebola and Hennepa viruses. Uh, but like the RCMP says, or uh, was it the RCMP or PHAC, uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada uh, said that, you know, that, the, that these samples are not the reason why they were fired. Now, Xu worked with Ebola viruses extensively. Um, it actually received a Governor General's award for her work with Ebola viruses. I think she developed a vaccine. Um, hold on, let me check it out. Anyway. Doesn't, maybe there was no vaccine, but in, the, she was doing groundbreaking work along with another Canadian scientist, Gary Kobinger, uh, and they shared a Governor's General Award in 2018. And Xu and her husband, Cheng, were, were not alone in being removed from the, uh, uh, the National Microbiology Laboratory. Uh, a number of their students were too. Uh, a number of Chinese students, uh, or you know, ethnic ethnic Chinese students, um, and what what is interesting about this story is that the House of Commons requested from the Public Health Agency of Canada uh, documents outlining the reasoning behind the firing of these two prominent scientists and their students. These two Canadian scientists. And the Public Health Agency of Canada refused. And the Speaker of the House then said, well, no, we're like, no, we're going to like, force you to like give us those documents and tell us you know precisely what the reasoning is behind what has happened to these scientists and the prime minister's office intervened and took 
the Speaker of the House and took Parliament to court to block uh, the release of these materials, outlining precisely why. Like, that's it. We just don't know why these two scientists were removed from the NML. I feel like the story here is not the behavior of the scientists, which was all public. We know about their ties to Chinese scientists, their collaborations with Chinese scientists, because that information is public. It's not hidden information. You know, they, they were publishing papers together with like their names on there. The mystery here the thing that needs to be investigated is not the scientists themselves. It's the government's behavior, the Canadian government's behaviors towards them. And why the fuck is the Prime Minister's office taking this never-before-done move of like suing Parliament to halt the release of these documents? That's the story. If those documents are released, whatever investigation the RCMP or whoever else did into the scientist, you know, whatever rationale they found for removing them from their jobs, from their livelihoods, it's going to be in those documents. So I feel like rather than pursuing or vilifying this scientist, the big question, the big like investigation needs to be around like what is the government what is the government of Canada trying to hide? Elaine de War does a terrible job of this story. She, like many uh, other journalists, kind of focuses on the scientists themselves and their links their public links to Chinese researchers. Scientists collaborate internationally all the time. And I mean, like, and that's why we find that the Wuhan Institute of Virology has like so many ties to what I earlier called the virology industri industrial complex. With EcoHealth Alliance, Peter Dazek, and, uh, and with other scientists, we have like direct info about them directly funding or directly collaborating with the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, into doing research on SARS, SARS-type viruses. With these two Canadian scientists, there is no connection to SARS that I can find. They were doing, as I said, work with Ebola and work with the Hanipa viruses. So I don't know why Elaine de War finds it necessary to rope them in. And to his credit, Jesse Brown also gets confused by this part of the story. Doesn't quite see the links that she's seeing. <laughs> It's a frustr frustrating episode of Canada Land. 
I recommend you search alternative alternative sources. <laughs> For those of you so inclined in going down the rabbit hole, the infinite rabbit hole of uh, COVID origin research, uh, you can you know follow Drastic on Twitter if you have Twitter. Uh, they have a website uh, called drasticresearch.org. Uh, what else can I tell you? Um, <laughs> it's not hard to find them, you know, like uh, it's not hard to find them on Twitter. Uh, Yuri Dagan actually like posted on, commented on the, on the, on this particular episode of Canada Land himself, you know, also one of the point. I feel like I already felt uncomfortable uh, about the story and I was like going to Twitter to like complain to Canada Land Twitter uh, about their episode and I found out that Yuri Dagan had done it like three hours before. So that was nice. I feel like if Jesse Brown or, or Canada Land producers wanted Canadian content, uh, Yuri Dagan He's Canadian. They could have asked him. Uh, Alina Chan, who is also Canadian, even though for some bizarre reason Elaine Dewar mentioned her as formerly Canadian, because um, <laughs> she works in the States, that makes you formerly Canadian? I don't know. I... I if she has renounced her Canadian citizenship, <laughs> Canadian citizenship, I don't know anything about it. Uh, I, and I suspect uh, Elaine Dewar does not either. Uh, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she has renounced her citizenship. I don't know. But it was a bizarre way of like introducing somebody, a formerly Canadian. Uh, but yeah, Alina Chan. Uh, I like her work because she explains things very well. Uh, much more clearly than Elaine de War. So yeah, there's, there, there you go. There's like two easy Canadian sources to interview. And also, Alina Chan has also published a book uh, on the origins, on the, on, the, on the research into the origins of COVID. So, you know, if the reason is that, you know, for interviewing Elaine DeWar is that she's Canadian and published a book, well, Alina Chan fits that criteria and is able to explain things infinitely better, appears to understand the science way, way better. She's a, uh, oh, what's her title? She's an engineer, virus engineer. She does work. Uh, looking. Oh God, I'm gonna I'm gonna botch this. She's the one that's able to explain things really well, not me. <laughs> From Wikipedia, Alina Chan is a Canadian molecular biologist specializing in gene therapy and cell engineering at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, where she's a postdoctoral fellow. <laughs> there you go. Wikipedia does not agree with the 
with uh, with the labeling as formerly Canadian. <laughs> ah. Uh, I feel like I was resi resisting saying it a bit, but yeah, I feel like there there was a certain uh, unnecessary undertone of racism in the war's account. I said it. <laughs> That's it. That's how I'm going to close this episode. Thank you very much for listening to another thrilling episode of The Sound of Doom as I investigate... Uh, well, I didn't investigate anything. I, I analyze. <laughs> I process out loud my thoughts about what I'm reading uh, regarding the origins of COVID. I feel like I've probably done like four episodes that touch on this in different ways. Uh, so yeah, maybe I'll post a, a link to Yuri Dagan's uh, April 22nd article and maybe a link to, I don't know, I'll find some other stuff to link to. Uh, maybe I'll, po yeah, I'll, I'll post a link to Drastic and uh, other document regarding the DARPA proposal that was refused that outlines um, um, the manipulation of viruses that was planned, the, the desire to mix and match uh, furin cleavage sites with novel uh, coronaviruses. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did. I'm gonna... Uh, have dinner now. Maybe I'll have a shower. I don't know. We're gonna figure it out though. Peace out. Bye.